evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast of my freshly written speculative fiction and the often stranger-than-fiction stories behind it. This week, for our 119th episode, the ninth of Season 2, A Season of Short Works, I've written a story that is about a devil. Not of the supernatural kind, but one who seems to have once walked among us in the flesh which, in my opinion, makes it all the more horrifying. The narrative is based on a very sad myth that has lingered in my family for generations. I think that every person whose family has deep roots in the American South and who looks into their family history sooner or later finds a connection to slavery. Whether their ancestors were among the people who were enslaved or their ancestors were slaveholders themselves, it is a difficult lineage to come to terms with. Since both sides of my family immigrated to the South, Georgia and the Carolinas in particular, during the colonial era, they fought in the Revolutionary War and all the other wars that followed, including the Civil War. And yes, I am sad to say, like so many of that time period, they did hold a small number of individuals in slavery to work in their homes, fields, and businesses. On one side of the family, I know the names of the persons who were enslaved and what became of them after they were freed. But on the other side of my family, well, that's somewhat of a mystery, despite my best efforts at investigation. Exploring this troublesome part of my heritage has given me a lot to think about, as you might imagine. As a person who cares very much about wanting to actively do something to combat racism in America today and give back to oppressed populations and communities, but certainly not having any money to donate to anyone for reparations, I mean, <laughs> come on, I'm an adjunct English professor, there's certainly no dollars there. The main thing that I have to give is my time and my abilities as an educator to make sure that the struggle for freedom and equality isn't forgotten. So, I've sought out opportunities to teach the public as much as I can about the important facts of American history that we simply cannot ignore or shy away from, including slavery and those who fought so bravely against it, whether as abolitionists, by helping freedom seekers on the Underground Railroad, or by writing amazing novels that change the hearts and minds of the world. On weekends, I volunteer as a tour guide at the Harriet Beecher Stowe House, where I talk about her correspondences with people like Frederick Douglass, how her time living in a crossroads city like Cincinnati, where many freedom seekers passed through, inspired her to write her great novel. I also talk about the house's importance in much more recent history as a safe place listed in Victor Hugo Green's famous Green Book, where African-Americans traveling through Cincinnati could count on being welcomed for food and lodging during the era of segregation and Jim Crow. It's a fascinating story, and if you're ever passing through Cincinnati, I highly recommend visiting. If you want to make a whole day of learning about African-American history in our city, you might also want to visit the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center downtown and or the John Rankin House, an actual stop on the Underground Railroad. I'm putting links to all of the above in the show notes for this episode for you to check out, and if I'm on duty that day at the Stowe House, I might be your tour guide. Who knows? Getting back to the background for today's story, though, which I don't want to spoil too much by giving away too many details, 
I do think it is important to say that all of the major plot points of the story are based on actual events, at least as they were remembered by my older relatives and related to me. I did have a particular ancestor who was unfortunately not only a slaveholder, but also a very cruel man to both his own family and those who were enslaved on his plantation. According to those accounts that I have heard, the central tragedy and cover-up afterward that are the subjects of this narrative occurred, including the part about the painting at the end. Although no one was sure how it got there, so I have had to take some creative liberties with that part. An older cousin of mine, though, claimed to have seen both the church and the portrait before they were destroyed. Last, I have changed the names of all the characters in the story who were based on the aforementioned real people, including the name of the wife, which is to this day considered a cursed name in my family. No one has used it for several decades, even though it had been a family name for generations since before they came to America. Side note, it was supposed to have been my name because the original tradition was that it was supposed to go to the firstborn daughter of each generation. However, my mother wisely said no to that one. So thanks again, Mom, <laughs> for that one. Although this lady was by all accounts a kind and beloved person, she led a very difficult life, and her unlucky fate seems to have extended to later generations. Every girl in our family who has been named after her since then has married a man who died at a young age under very strange or very sad circumstances. One was struck by lightning, and several have committed suicide. The women on that side of my family feel that the evilness of her husband, the man who was the slave owner, and what he did has somehow doomed anyone who carries that name, hence the superstition. Granted, every bit of this is apocryphal information, based on family legends told to me through the years by several different people. I have tried to substantiate their veracity, but there is a blank spot in our family records for this branch of our ancestry from around the time of the Civil War, in which the real truth has simply been lost to history. And perhaps that's for the best. Ernest Hemingway once said that all good works of fiction are alike and that they are truer than if they really happened. You can decide for yourself as you listen to this week's tale, which is called North Georgia Devil, a short story by Vivian Catfield. The air was like a festering wound, crispy hot at the edges, but sticky moist as it slid down the throat and settled, like a too old oyster uneasily in the belly. Brennan was hungry, but he knew better than to eat much in the heat of the day. It would only come back up. He felt the sweat trickling down his spine beneath his shirt and longed to scratch his back against the pine tree that he sat in front of, but he knew better. Mama would tan his hide for staining his new white shirt on the tree bark so he sat dripping, even in the considerable shade of the swept yard. With his leather shoes on, too, and tall socks up to his knee breeches, because Mama said only boys without any manners ran around barefoot in the summer. 
Simon lounged across the circle from him, mopping the sweat from his brow with the hem of his grayish homespun shirt. Rolling the shooter back and forth between his fingers, he studied the positions of the other marbles in the ring. Brennan envied Simon's shoelessness. Would you go ahead and shoot it already? Brennan pleaded. You know you've already got me beat, and I'm thirsty. Mama's probably got some lemonade left over from last night. I'll fetch you a glass if you just won't draw it out. I know, but I like to get the angles right, Simon replied, as he rolled himself onto his belly in the dusty red yard. For next time, you might get better, and then I'd have something to worry about. Waving his bare feet in the air, Simon squinted, took careful aim, and shot. The tall clicked against Simon's final duck, knocking it outside the circle. Saying nothing, Simon propped himself up on one elbow and extended his open palm. Grudgingly, Brennan handed him his shooter. That's my last tiger's eye. You'll get another one, Simon grinned, dropping the marble into a sack tied to the rope belt around his waist. Were you just phoning about that lemonade or was there some left? No, it's in there. I think a couple hunks of cornbread, too. You want one? Brennan asked. Simon nodded. Both of the boys knew why Simon couldn't go into the house. They'd always known, without asking. Some things didn't need to be said. Brennan stood up and brushed the red clay dust off his pants. Want me to bring the Tom Brown book back, too? Yeah, might as well, Simon sighed, mopping his forehead again. It's too hot to do anything but read. I'll just stand here till you get back. Simon rose and walked over to the pine tree that Brennan had been sitting in front of and began rubbing his back against it. Man, doesn't sweating all the time make you itch? Yep, Brennan said as he trudged back to the house. Returning a few minutes later with a glass of lemonade in each hand and a large hunk of cornbread with butter on top balanced between his elbows, Brennan sat down beside Simon in the grass bare yard. Breaking the bread in half between them, the boys dipped into the butter with their fingers and smeared it on top of the bread. You reckon you're really going off to school next month? Simon asked, his mouth full. Yeah, that's what Mama says, Brennan replied, dropping buttery crumbs down his shirt front. You think it's going to be like with them boys? Simon said, wiping his mouth on his arm and reaching for the book. People bullying you around like flashmen and all? I hope not, said Brennan cramming the last two large bite of cornbread into his mouth. Me too, Simon said, glancing sideways at Brennan. You'd never make it. Brennan bumped up against Simon's shoulder. Shows how much you know. I'm a bruiser. He raised his arm and made a muscle. Mm-hmm. Keep telling yourself that, Simon laughed, feeling his friend's bicep. He tried to pinch down on it to make a frog, but Brennan jerked away. <laughs> Want me to read today, or are you going to fall asleep on me? I can't fall asleep. I can't even lean on anything. I've got a new shirt on, Brennan said. Too bad for you, Simon replied, flipping through the book. Where we get to yesterday? The part where Diggs shows up to help Tom and East, Brennan replied. They'd read the book together, Tom Brown's school days, several times already. Enough that they knew all of the major events and many of the lines. Until his little sister Frances was born the year before, Brennan had been the only child on the place besides Simon. That was how they'd met. When Brennan was sitting under that very same pine tree, sounding out the words in his primer, A is for apple, B is for boy, 
By the time Brennan had gotten to see us for Cat, he'd heard a voice whispering behind him, repeating every word he said. I'm bored, Simon had said. Can I play with you? Later, Brennan learned that Simon's father had left him out there sitting on a blanket in the shade of the yard with strict instructions not to stray off while he went out to the fields for the day. Simon's mother had died not long after they had been bought by the O'Banion plantation, and there was no other female slave to care for him, save for the grouchy old housekeeper, Miss Mary. But Miss Mary had made it plain to Miss Claudia, the lady of the house, that she didn't cotton to looking after any stray boys, so Simon had best learned to fend for himself. Miss Claudia was soft-hearted, and she'd taken the motherless Simon in hand, feeding him and looking after him surreptitiously under the premise that it was good for Brennan to have a companion out in such an isolated place. Perhaps it was because she'd lost a baby after Brennan, and until Francis was born four years later, thought she'd never be able to carry another child. Or perhaps it was because Simon's father, Gideon, proved to be such a solid worker and soon was made the foreman among the dozen slaves at the O'Banion's place, so that both he and his son were valued more than most. Regardless, the two boys had grown up together, inseparable. As Simon began to read, Brennan noticed a cloud of dust picking up on the road from the fields. He stopped breathing for a moment, and his chest grew tight. Papa. Simon closed the book and handed it to Brennan, who sat on it. The wagon pulled up under the shade of the pines, and Byron O'Banion stumbled off of it. What you boys doing? He slurred. Instinctively, Brennan scooted backward toward the tree. Simon froze and said nothing. He knew that it was best when Mr. O'Banion was in that state. What you got there? Byron staggered forward and bent down to pick up the book. Tom Brown, huh? You been a-reading of this, boy? To him? Byron slurred at Brennan. Then he glanced over at Simon, reeling unsteadily on his feet. No, sir, Brennan replied too quickly. Byron grabbed his son by the collar of his new shirt, raising him up off the ground to eye-level height. Pouring his whiskey-rancid words into Brennan's ear, he whispered, Don't lie to me, Nancy boy. Have you been reading to him after I told you not to? Byron's bulbous no nose was pressed against Brennan's cheek as he pointed at Simon. He remained motionless. No, sir, Brennan whispered again, trying not to shake, even though he could feel the tremor of it coursing through the length of his body like an electric current. Quicker than the eye could follow, Byron dropped him and slapped the book hard against his son's jaw. Brennan fell to the ground. Byron latched onto his son's wrist and twisted it up hard behind his back. Brennan felt something snap in his elbow, and he screamed in pain. In an instant, Simon leapt onto Byron's back and had his arm around the throat of the older man, trying to pull him away from Brennan. They fell to the ground. Byron rolled over and snatched Simon up by the ankles. Still lying in the dirt, Brennan saw his father swing the boy around in a circle and slam Simon's head as hard as he could into the pine tree they'd been sitting under. Byron staggered off inside the house to lie down, not once looking back. Brennan crawled over to his friend, holding his broken arm close to his chest, but he could tell it was already over. Simon's eyes were clouded with sleep, from which he would never awaken. For the rest of the afternoon, 
Brennan sat with Simon's body, cradling his friend's fractured skull in his lap, encircled by his broken arm. That was how Simon's father, Gideon, had found them when he'd come in from the fields that evening to make his daily report. Byron was still upstairs, having gone to bed drunk early, as he was accustomed to, many nights. Gideon simply stood there for a few moments, trying to make his mind reconcile with what his eyes were seeing. Then Gideon sat down with him and took his son's small, cold hands in his own, studying them. His tears streamed down his face. After a long time, Gideon asked Brennan why he was holding his arm, and the boy told him. When Gideon asked if he could straighten it out, Brennan said no. Gently, Gideon slid his arms beneath Simon's limp body and cradled his son's head against his shoulder. When your mama comes back from her calls with Miss Mary, Gideon said, send Miss Mary out to the cabin. I'm going to take Simon there and then walk over to the preacher's. Ain't nobody else can help him now. Tell Miss Claudia I'll be back up to the house tonight to speak with her. Gideon motioned at Brennan's arm, which was starting to swell. Make sure you tell your mother, too, what happened, and that she needs to see to your arm. Don't hide it from her. You need a doctor. It'll heal back crooked without one. Brennan nodded and wiped his nose on the sleeve of his new white shirt. It was filthy now from where his father had knocked him down in the dirt, so it didn't matter so much anymore. Nothing did, he thought, as he watched Gideon carry Simon away down to the cabin. That evening, Brennan couldn't sleep. After he told his mother everything, she'd wrapped his arm in a sling and said she'd drive him back into town to have it set in the morning. Tell the doctor you fell out of a tree, Claudia said, tying off the bandage. We... Can't have too many questions, not now, especially. The two sat together in chairs on the front porch, and they watched Gideon trudge back up the walk. Miss Mary was inside, tending to the baby, watching with one eye on the staircase so that she could carry little Francis out as a signal that Byron was up and that Gideon should hide without saying a word. Miss Claudia, this cannot stand, Gideon whispered to Claudia as he settled into the chair beside her. You know that Simon was my only son, as Brennan is yours. Mr. O'Bannon, he... Gideon paused. He's not right in the head anymore. The drink has rotted his brain and made a devil out of him. I know we've spoken of this before, what he's done to you and Brennan and my people as well and what we should do, but now... You don't have to say it, Gideon, Claudia interrupted, her lips drawn into a thin, hard line. I know what needs to be done. We've spoken of it before. It's, it's just that I can't make myself, she trailed off. Then I will do it, Gideon said. We will do it, with your permission, of course, for the safety of us all. Claudia sat still as rabbit, staring out into the clouded, starless sky. She wondered how she'd gotten there, to that porch, so far across the ocean from her home. She'd been Byron's second wife. He'd not intended on marrying her, but theirs was more of a marriage born of necessity than anything else after his first wife died. 
she'd interviewed to be his housekeeper, and then, well, one thing led to another. They'd married and moved out into the hill country of Georgia so far that none of her family could ever have found them, if anyone had taken the time to search. Yet Claudia knew they never would, mostly because all of them were dead. Just tell me again what we decided, please, Gideon, Claudia said finally. I believe I must be in shock and cannot gather my thoughts properly. Gideon studied Claudia's face carefully, his brown eyes smoldering like coals. As Mr. O'Banion comes down tomorrow to check on his hogs, I will be waiting in the nook just around the side of the back door. I will throw a sack down over his head and then signal for the other men to come forward. We will bind and carry him out to the burn pit, where you don't need to say the rest of it. I, I know, Claudia interjected, taking a deep breath and closing her eyes. In the morning, I will take Brennan into town, as if nothing more has happened than the boy fell out of a tree. While the doctor is tending to him, I am to contact our suppliers and make the regular orders for the month, saying that Mr. O'Banion has suddenly decided to go on a trip abroad to Brazil to see if he can get a better price for our cotton. Claudia shook her head. It seems like the thinnest of excuses. I just don't know if people will believe, Gideon broke in. White people believe what they choose to believe. They will see you, a woman they've always known, respectable, the mother of two young children trying to take care of her home and farm in her husband's absence, and they will believe you. Me? Never. But you, the angel of the home? Yes. They'll believe you. They will believe me, Claudia repeated, trying to calm herself down. But, oh, Jesus, God, Gideon, I don't know what to say about Simon. I am so sorry. I can't even begin to understand. No, Gideon replied. No, ma'am, I'm sure you can't. We live in different worlds of what is real. Always have. Only now, even more so. In the life I want to be living, my son is still with us. He was all I had left without his mother, but now? Gideon shook his head. That cannot happen. All I can do is try to make sure that it doesn't happen to the rest of us. The next morning, Claudia and Mary rose before sunrise and left for town, taking Brennan and the baby Francis with them. They needn't have worried about Byron hearing them, for he did not rise until almost noon. When he did, Gideon was still standing by the back door waiting for him. The flour sack was wet from the sweat of Gideon's hands as he pulled it down over Byron. Seeing Gideon pin Byron's arms down to his sides, the other men needed no signal. They rushed forward with rope to bind him and farm tools as weapons. Byron writhed like a snake against his bonds and cursed until one of them hit him hard on the back of the head with a shovel. Then he lay still, at least until they carried him out to the burn pile and threw him on it. As the flames grew higher, Byron came to and began screaming. 
None of them paid him any mind. What a waste, Gideon said. He wiped his sweaty palms on the thighs of his pants as he and the other men returned to the fields. When an old hog wanders into a fire like that. The next day was Sunday, and by then Claudia, Mary, and Brennan had returned with the baby. A doctor in town had set Brennan's arm without a single question. Boys were always falling out of trees. When Mary told her that she was going to the little log church the slaves had built at the edge of the land that bordered the plantation, Claudia insisted that she and the children go with her so that she and Brennan could say goodbye to Simon. Brennan could feel every eye in the room on him and his mother as they walked into the little church with Mary carrying the baby. The crowd waiting to pass by Simon's pine coffin parted suspiciously to allow them to the head of the line, but Claudia went to the back of it. The soft hum of conversation ceased until Gideon went over to greet them. Then, sensing that Gideon welcomed them, the hum began again. The funeral was short. Brennan and Claudia tried their best to follow along with the singing, but they did not know the words and there were no hymnals. At the end of it, as they were all filing out into the graveyard, Claudia noticed something curious at the back of the church. A painting of Jesus hung to the right of the door, and another painting of the devil hung to the left. Christ's face was smooth, like a boy's, but the devil's was coarse underneath with purple veins and heavy wrinkles. His was a terrible picture. Why would you have a portrait of the devil hanging in a house of God? Claudia asked Gideon, who had led the prayers for his son, along with the preacher. To make sure we remember that the devil is always close by, Gideon explained, no matter where we are. Claudia nodded. True, although I believe that I have a more accurate likeness of the devil at the house. I will bring it to you tomorrow. And so she did. Together, Claudia and Gideon took down the old painting of the devil. In its place, they hung the portrait that she had brought of Mr. O'Banion. It had been over the fireplace at the main house. Claudia said that she had no more need of it and that its proper place was there instead. The portrait hung in the same spot on that wall for over a century. War came in the years that followed and the thought of one missing man meant nothing to anyone when there were so many thousands of others dying. Once it was all over, Claudia sold the house and the land with the little church and the graveyard on it to some Yankees who came down and paid her cash. All of the family left. Still, as the years passed, the two portraits of Jesus and the other one remained. Over time, his painted face cracked and peeled. Mr. O'Banion's likeness came to more closely resemble that of the original devil that he had replaced. By the time the little church burnt down, it was impossible to tell any difference between the two of them at all. This is the end of the short story, North Georgia Devil, by Vivian Catfield. Be sure to tune in next week for another news story here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there 
just might be watching you.